like Patrick said, it's question kind of number seven there. Why would, why would somebody want to bookmark your content? Why would they want to subscribe to your content? So a little bit about the distinctive of your particular podcast or YouTube show and why why they should do that. So let's start with Patrick. <coughs> Patrick? Sure. Greeno. Yes. Okay. Hi. <laughs> Patrick Greeno, uh, founder and principal of Radicards.com. And we started in 2010, so we're now on our 11th year. And we're now a blog, blogging and content production and marketing company. So we make custom products for the sports card industry, clients within auction houses, product breakers, pretty much anybody who wants custom products can come through us and we can make them for them. That sounds like a sales pitch. So <laughs> the, the stickiness, yeah. you know, what content are you putting out that, because you know, a lot of times in the, in the, in the internet, they, don't, they, want, they want to be subtly promoted. So sure. what's your subtle stickiness? Well, I, I've been, I'm not passionate for the hobby. I've been in it since I was six years old, and I, I just like talking about cards. And so it's, I, I, I talk about, I go into depth on product rarities and why something is a variation. I talk about that. I go into like full gallery breakdowns of rare sets people don't ever see, and I talk about why they're rare. And so I, I kind of bring to light things that maybe are harder to find on the internet. Good. Thanks, Patrick. You're welcome. Brian Gray. What yes. makes, uh, first of all, uh, a little bit about yourself, and then how do you, uh, you, you seem to be sticky. <laughs> <laughs> Everything you do generates a lot of eyeballs and ears um, because you are outspoken and you tell like you see it. So is that your secret for stickiness? We'll get to stickiness in a minute. I'm Brian Gray. I'm the CEO of Leaf. Um, I've been in the industry at every level, store owner, show dealer, distributor. I mean, I've done all that stuff, which I think equips me to have a unique perspective on the industry. I think when you get to stickiness, I think generally, <laughs> I think in the hobby, there's really no one in a position of the manufacturers or people really who know what's going on behind the curtain or how the sausage is made. I don't think those people generally talk ever. And when you get it, it's a canned response that is designed to PR people to death. And it's just... People respect honesty, and you don't even have to like it, because some of the words I have to say are just tough truth, but truth with love, and just telling people how it is in a nice, kind way, and just, I think people respect that, and I think that's my goal, is to be like the voice of reason that actually knows how the sausage is made, and what's going on behind the curtain, and I think it gives me a different perspective, but what's great about this is I get to learn perspectives that I don't, I don't play with anymore, it's great. Okay, so I'm going to go home, tell my wife that... Brian Gray said that uh, authentic truth in love is sticky. <laughs> John Keating. Hello, I'm John Keating. I have a podcast called That 70s Card Show. I'm not as heavy as Brian is. I, I prefer to uh, focus on useless facts and useless information that won't help you anywhere outside of a bar or, or a trivia contest. Uh, and I'm stuck in the 70s with my collecting and my mentality about collecting. Give me true wax any day of the week. Uh, that's about that. So stickiness for you is being authentic, and uh, and then you're going to be sticky for people that like what you do and you're consistent. Sure, you say so. Thank you. Well, I mean, you can't. But stickiness is not about doing something for everybody. Exactly. Exactly. Rich Klein. My name is Rich Klein, and I probably in this room have the second most experience in the hobby. 
and I've done shows. <laughs> I've, I've uh, owned and managed stores. I've worked for Dr. Beckett at Beckett. I now currently work for ComC. I even had a brief stint working for Brian. We won't talk about that. Uh, <laughs> and I think my way of being, quote, sticky is to have a positive attitude to talk about how good the hobby is. And because of all my previous things, including all the PR I've done and, and the fact when I ran shows, my phone number was accessible, to talk and email to as many people as possible about the positives instead of trying to focus on the negatives. Very positive tone, which I agree with. James. Hello, my name is James Perez. My uh, YouTube channel is called Elite Hunters. And quite simply, I like to pride myself in my collection style, which is based on themes. Um, whether it's a triple crown winners, hitters of pitchers, MVP winners, I always try to show and think outside the box when people are just collecting runs or years or sets. I always try to think differently, uh, collect action shots or NBA action shots and just outside the box and show people it doesn't have to take thousands of dollars. It could be a dollar pickup, but there's always something to like in a card when you see it. And favorite and appreciated. That's my stickiness. Yeah, well, again, the stickiness, you want to be sticky for the people that you're supposed to be sticky with, you know, that, that appreciate what you're doing. If they really appreciate what you're doing, you're hoping they come back for more. Victor, you're focused. My name is Victor, uh, the rookie card specialist on YouTube. I focus on the evolution of the rookie card. We look at its past and present day status, all in an effort to preserve the future of this cultural icon. And the stickiness, because you, you were all-time greats, you're kind of rebranding a little bit. Yeah. Does that make it more sticky, less sticky? I mean, what, you, you, uh, you're passionate, I think that's an aspect of it. Yeah. I think my, my stickiness would be where I'm, I'm kind of like the 50-yard line in life. I'm, I'm not an old guy, but I'm not a young guy either. But I'm a purist when it comes to collecting. And so that's kind of my, my mission, per se, is to um, keep the rookie card pure. Okay, Victor, so would you say I'm in the red zone? Stefan. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, my name is Stefan Lockler. I'm a third fourth of About the Cards podcast. <laughs> we, we run a weekly show covering uh, new releases, old releases, upcoming releases, as well as uh, sticky hobby topics of the week, uh, listener questions, um, just kind of a hobby, the view, if you will. Differing opinions. Uh. You guys maintain your passion for two hours every Wednesday night. <laughs> Does that make yes. it more sticky or less sticky? It seems like podcasts that are longer really have to be entertaining, and you guys have a lot of fun together, sure. guys and gal. Uh, no, no, we don't. We definitely do. Um, it, it comes. Um, I mean, we just wrapped up our third year, so uh, we've got a lot of camaraderie together, and um, I mean, we just kind of anticipate where the breaks are, and next person hops in and gives their opinion. Next person, Angela. Well, hello. Set the record straight. I'm Angela Loeffler, um, co-producer of About the Cards, also stagehand or whatever else needs to be, happen that week. Um, and uh, 
I think our stickiness is it's just a, a bunch of like normal people thrown in a room to talk about the hobby. It's not like it's not investing. Well, though though Ben tries to make it about investing all the time. Though <laughs> whatever arbitrage, arbitrage. economics um, <laughs> of the whole thing. But it's just like normal people having a conversation about how how uh, Mark McGuire's having has the wrong rookie rookie year. So there you go. You're not going to win that on that podcast. No. <laughs> <laughs> Kelly, welcome. Hi, I am, I'm Kelly Francis. I am the VP of Content and Sports Card Investor. Um, we obviously produce a lot of videos for YouTube. We also have a website where we do articles about breaking news, uh, in-depth look at rookie cards, best sets, parallels, things like that. Um, we also have multiple social media channels where we try to provide original content for all of those. I think our stickiness is uh, the fact that we are unpredictable. Um, we really try to think outside of the box at this company. Um, so we try to look at the hobby from multiple different angles and give you multiple different storylines to keep you entertained and delivering things that you would not have thought you would have seen or something that you weren't expecting to see. Well, on the other hand, y'all are kind of predictable and you always have the forecast yeah i mean we're, we're consistent we're consistent on predictability i would say You're so consistently predicting things <laughs> yes but but there's there is a way in which we we will always try to be better and i think that by being better you have to think outside the box which makes it, it does make it sometimes unpredictable yeah. I, I will accept that and jeff i do think that when you were uh, preempting your regularly scheduled programming this past week to give commentary on what was hot in the industry. That was a lot of that was a lot of fun. This was a wild it was wild. Was fly, but I'm saying that's that's I think what Kelly's talking about. It is well, it's that makes you sticky. Um, it is that, but I you know, we when sports card investors started, we were very focused on the dollars and cents. It was very much about, you know, what cards are going to go up and that type of stuff. And, and we still cover that. We still do our top five cards and everything like that. But we've, over time, have really tried to expand to be more content that even those who aren't um, even in the sports card hobby right now can enjoy. And so when we go cover the card shows like today here in Dallas, our, our video this morning was the seven most interesting and expensive cards of the Dallas Card Show. And, and we've noticed when we do that type of content, it draws a really wide audience in, people who aren't part of the hobby. And so that's motivated us to continue to do more out of the box things, and you're gonna see a lot more of it in the months ahead, that our goal is to expand the hobby overall. How have you motivated your viewers and listeners? Because I think a lot of the recruiting of subscribers is satisfied customers or satisfied viewers that say, hey, tell them they're friends. Because I don't think you're outwardly marketing to every single person as much as you're, you've had some fans that have really benefited from some of the things you've done and they've told their friends. Because otherwise, how do you get this exponential growth? And yeah. To me, that's stickiness. Well, we've had some of our videos, you know, kind of take off and big view counts and everything like that. Um, but I mean, it's about giving people what they love. And what we found is that even at these card shows or when we were covering the national, in fact, our whole theme national week, and, and Kelly came up with this theme and told our whole staff, she said, our goal this week is to capitalize on everybody who's sitting at home, their fear of missing out. And we're going to give them the first look and the most in-depth look behind the scenes of everything going on at the national 
while they're sitting on their couch somewhere else in the world wishing they were at the national. And that's what we're gonna deliver to them. And that's what we concentrated on all week. And I, I think that does make it sticky because people want that, they wanna be there even though they can't be there. Trading on the, on the FOMO, which I think mm -hmm. is good. And you know, Patrick, your, your motivation for this is, you know, sticking as can be, do they watch to the end of your video? But really what you're talking about is, are they coming back again this week, next week? Okay you know, recurring visitors. Jeremy Allen, what's your hobby content cred? You've um, got lots of irons in the fire. I, I do have lots of irons in the fire. Uh, Jeremy Allen with uh, Collector's League, I have an Instagram, and uh, currently I'm doing the graphics for ComC, and I'm also uh, one of the guys that's heading up the team for a card score that does a, a platform grading. Um, my background is in graphic design. I appreciate the cards for the designs. So when I concentrate on my content, I'm looking for unique content and different content, but I don't think there's enough of the graphic stuff showing off and, and the designs and that kind of stuff. So I'm gonna be focusing on unique content like that. I'm actually doing a full-size poster with all of Luca's uh, prisms on it to show everyone what that array of rainbow looks like and where they come from and how you get which box it came out because no one knows and there's a lot of new collectors that just don't have an idea what that looks like. So I just think there's a lot of graphic content missing. So you're saying that stickiness in Instagram, at least, can be not what you say as much as what you show. Yeah, we're visual people. But it's visual. It's visual. I, I think that I could big part of the stickiness. Yeah, well, the cards are visual. People like what they see. Yes. They might like what they hear. Uh, note to self, audio podcast. Uh, <laughs> I think stickiness is not overrated, but, you know, when I see my podcast stats, I realize that a lot of people are listening to the end of my episodes and i think that's a positive thing then i realized wait wait a minute they're really really short <laughs> so i think the test is having them come back and i do get a lot of people to come back they especially come back when rich klein is on well, <laughs> or john keating I, or victor I appreciate the fact that they're 15 minutes in the morning because it makes my life so much easier but my point is as we finish this segment is that i don't think stickiness is proportional inversely or directly to the the amount of time i think people either like what they're hearing and seeing or they don't and if they do they tell their friends and they come back for more and we've got a great positive story to tell so and thank you each of you all for being here and uh, telling your stories and helping grow and improve the hobby so enough for that question this is going to be a question for the esteemed panel on uh, the future of manufacturing, production, <coughs> card companies. The latest announcement certainly affected Tops and Panini uh, very, very directly, but I think there's implications for Upper Deck and Leaf as well. And uh, what Fanatics does looks like they're going to be in a in a in the primary position. Although you might say they might be flying. They might be second chair to the players' associations who might be really calling the shots in terms of how this category is going to be approached. So, Jeff, you want to go first? I would, love to, hear from, kind of, I would love to hear from Brian because obviously okay, there's no, no greater expert in the room. This was I, Jeff's question. Okay. I think it's a great question. I mean, I just spent an hour and a half on Jeremy Lee's show talking about the same thing. And unfortunately, it's a topic that can take an hour and a half or much more. So I think just my two-second summary of what Going back to the sausage being made and what we know and don't know, um, I would not be shocked if Fanatic spoke to every company about purchasing them at some point. They probably learned a lot about the process. 
they didn't buy anyone. So whatever that is. But I think here's what we do know. I think, and positivity plays into this. I think what we do know is Fanatics is a serious organization. They're going to handle this professionally, and they're going to do their best to grow the hobby, as you said, Doc. And I think that's a great start. The manufacturers, a couple of them have had their dreams kind of blown up. Both were getting sold. One was going public, and one was about to be sold privately for a lot of money, more than I ever dreamed a card company could go for. There's going to be a pivot here. I personally, what I hear is that there's really no sure thing that any of them are getting acquired. Well, and so, do you regard as it a friendly amendment? Because I don't think they necessarily even need to acquire, but I think there's a real chance that they would want to enter, enter into a business relationship with Tops and Panini. I do not involves- see a business relationship that is not full on, we own you now. They're not going to do any kind of like subcontracting, like having someone make jerseys for them. There is 0% chance of that. The blood is boiling. And I don't think even two years is going to simmer down the level of okay. negative excitement that is existing right this minute. I think the key thing is whether Fanatics buys companies or doesn't buy companies really doesn't matter. The companies are all very smart, and I've spoken to everybody listed on this list except I predict because I'm in a lawsuit with them. But the rest of us, we've all talked, and I think everybody is smart enough and has enough money in the war chest now to pivot. Okay. And that's what this whole thing is about as a pivot. And I think you're going to see companies making cards like I make with airbrush jerseys, and I think collectors are gonna look and say, that's Bowman. And if that's our Bowman now, that's what it is. And we as collectors, because I'm a collector too, I'm the only card guy who really collects, who owns a company in the manufacturing space. As a collector, I don't really care. I just want cool cards. And if Fanatics makes cool cards, I'll buy those. If Topps makes airbrush Bowman, it's still compelling, I'll buy that. And if Panini makes national treasures with airbrush logos, that's not 4,000 a box, but 1,800 now, I'll find that compelling. I'd rather not pay four thousand. I'd rather pay eighteen hundred. So, as a collector, I think again, as long as all the companies just are willing to pivot and not just give up on these categories because they're being forced to kind of change how they do things, I think collectors can still win in the process as long as we're able to look past three feet in front of us and not be so caught up on well, if it doesn't have logos, it's not a real card because I think that is a hang-up. That is a hobby. If we can get past that, we're, we're past about that. to. Well, we're kind of past it. I still get crap all the time about it, but we're going to learn eventually that we have more choices when we broaden our horizons. And in 1981, Joe Montana's rookie didn't have logos. 1976, Walter Payton didn't have logos. So once we get past these things and we have a little more vision, and you're the kind of guy who would have vision, Doc, I think then we have choices. And I think as a hobby, this could be a really good thing if people along the food chain at all levels of manufacturing can just pivot. But I would caution people not to expect them to go buy up every company or any company because Fanatics is a brand-driven company. The same way Panini was a brand-driven company when it came and it threw Donruss' heritage back, didn't care. It was all about Panini, Panini, Panini. You can rest assured this is going to be about Fanatics, Fanatics, Fanatics. They're going public at some point. It's all about Fanatics. They're never going to say Topps Chrome. Even if they bought Topps, it'd be Fanatics Chrome. It's all about fanatics. That's my three. I'm done talking about it because I'll go forever. But I think that's kind of, I think we have to just, there's a lot to unpack there. But I think we can see this as opportunity, which my question was three, which we didn't win. But, you know, I think that positivity is just, it's going to change how the hobby goes forward if we can be positive about this and not look at it as the end of the world. Because it wasn't the end of the world when Topps lost football. And it wasn't the end of the world when, when, uh, when Upper Deck lost basketball. We thought it was. The idea of Panini taking over was frightening. Nobody's ever lost. But it worked. People have lost the sport, but they haven't lost 
when they've lost the players, the subjects, that's where they're in trouble. And that's why this is so problematic. Because you, you're, you're populating your sets with individuals that you can have get the rights from. If they're in the union, I think you can't get those. There's limits. How many you can do? Fleer action football in the 70s. Mm-hmm. Couldn't even mention a they couldn't name, name them. on the back of a card. Yeah. But we can sign players to long-term deals before they go pro. Okay. And those deals continue. Brian, you hey, Kyle. That Welcome. You would be one of the least affected people by all of this. We're a winner mm-hmm. in this, which I hate. Because it's like when you watch everyone losing the stock market, but you shorted. You feel good because you won. But I won in this. Well, you're, you're a winner. Only, I'm a winner in this deal for you sure. You don't even have to pivot. I, here's what I have to do. These guys are about to prove that what I've been telling people for 10 years is true. That the logo is not everything. It's the player and the ink and the appearance of the card matters. And we're, they're about to prove it for me, what I couldn't convince people completely in 10 years. These big companies, Tops and Panini, are about to prove what I've been saying correct. You're a winner. I'm a huge Upper winner. Deck is a winner. Upper Deck's most likely to get bought if anyone does. But I agree with you, Upper Deck, <laughs> I, and I mentioned that. Upper Deck makes a great product. They revolutionized the industry in, in the middle of, you know, at the end of the 80s, early 90s. That's what stands out. They make a great product. They have Jordan, they have LeBron, they have Tiger, they have Lionel Messi, they have all these guys. Tom Brady, a guy named Tom Brady. Upper Deck, I think, is, is in play. That's my opinion. Jeff, you had a, wanted to chime in here. I was going to give you... I think, I mean, I think what Brian said is fascinating. I hadn't thought about it from the angle of it actually possibly making unlicensed products more, you know, recognized as legitimate, which I agree would be a good thing. You know, from my standpoint, from the, from the long-term perspective, I'm extremely excited about this and I think it's great news. I understand collectors uh, who've collected tops for, you know, 50 years being upset about the brands going away and that and that possibility, I completely get that. And I, I do think from a tradition standpoint, that stinks. But my favorite element of the entire thing is the fact that the sports leagues are going to have ownership in this because they now will have a natural desire to promote sports cards during their broadcasts as part of their marketing mix. They're incentivized to do so. I look forward to watching that Sunday night football game in seven years when the starting lineup is is introduced by showing their sports cards on the screen. And I think that will happen um, because that's that's what the leagues are going to be incentivized to do. I think it's going to be a huge boom. I think if you look 10 years out, the market, the sports card market is going to be way stronger as a result of this. I think getting from point A to point B could be really rocky. I'm worried. If, I'm, I'm worried about the next few years, and if, if they, if Fanatics doesn't acquire Tops and Panini, how those companies are going to react in terms of print runs and lack of innovation and trying to squeeze every dollar. I, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. But it's, it's. Um, I'm, I'm a little nervous about the short term, but very excited about what this means for the long term. Other comments? I, as a collector, I want my Dallas Cowboys star on the cards that I collect for my PC. And I think with Fanatics, the amount that is probably paid for those licenses and the amount of marketing and volume they're going to do, it's going to be hard for unlicensed products to compete with that because they're going to be in every stadium shop. They're going to be everywhere because of the touch they have. And they're going to take over at large. So I, the unlicensed stuff, I think you're going to have, still have the unlicensed uphill battle. I think uh, no matter what Fanatics does, whether they buy Tops, Panini, grab upper deck, they're going to be fine. They're going to have the marketing money. They have the reach through the stadiums. They have the players behind them now because they're getting a percentage of it. I think they're going to be fine, but I have to have the logo on mine. So and I, I just, when I collect my PC stuff, I, I'm a Dallas Cowboy fan. I want my Dallas Cowboy logo. Branding is important to me, and I think it's part of the branding process. 
when you see a card that everything's just photoshopped off of them and there's none of the logos, they, they come across kind of generic because there's not much going on with them. I disagree. So. When you look at a product like Panini Diamond Kings for baseball, I think that product looks beautiful without the logos on it. Yeah, I'd say, and I have no desire to touch an unlicensed product. I don't even look at it. Even though I like the prisms for football, I won't touch a prism for baseball. Yeah, I'm with you too. And, and I get where a card manufacturer would want to have the licenses not matter. It would be beneficial for the manufacturers and for the masses. But you can't ignore and isolate the purist collector, because there's many, and say that it doesn't matter. Licensing brands, logos, they do matter. It's, it is, it's really important. So let's just say for sake of argument and simplicity, that of the current collectors, half of them care about the logos very deeply, right. and half of them don't. Right. They're your customers, okay, or yeah. some of these others. What we're going to have with with uh, fanatics coming in is a whole. We're going to they're going to be twice as many collectors, I think, in five years. And the 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 new half that are coming in, like the half that came to the national, they have no preconceptions. They're gonna they're gonna see what they see, and so they're they're going to be shaped by what it is, just like we saw in the seventies. Uh, what it was that was just what it was when they come in it's going to be what it is I think fanatics is going to be the one to shape it because they're going to be the ones shaping it with the amount of money they've probably put on these licenses that means they're going to have to make a lot of product to cover those costs so yes. they're going to come at it with a yeah. lot of different stuff any other comments from I, I mean I would kind of um, I, I don't know whether uh, fanatics hops in and I, I think Brian has a great point that all the other companies are kind of irate at fanatics at the moment so that's going to make the sales difficult however given the timing of when they launched all of their announcements and everything else you know it would be nice if it worked more like the motor companies where you know if Mitsubishi buys Ford people are still going to want the Ford Mustang people are still going to want the Ford Ranger they're still going to want the Mitsubishi Lancer and, and if they put fanatics logo on the back and it says tops chrome on the front people will still buy it and you think that's not going to happen? They will not. You think the, the name, They're not putting the name Tops on a card. You can write. I'll. I'll bet. No, if they wanted Tops as a brand, they could have bought the company for one point three billion. No, they could now buy the company for a fraction of that. No, they can't. <laughs> they took the last. They actually point, can't. They, they actually the can't because Tops is going to make Somebody one can. billion dollars in the next five years. You're not buying that for less than a billion three. It was already a steal. The difference is they could have had the license for about a third of what they're paying if they had bought Tops. Now they're going to pay triple the price and still have to pay 80% for Tops if they want it. Tops is not under a billion dollars. I mean, I heard Darren Ravel say 400 million. And I said, I'm in. I'll write an LOI right now in front of you guys. I'll take it for 400 million. It's sold. There's no chance in heck. It'd be a steal at 800 million. It's a billion dollars still. And so I think Fanatics, if they really wanted those brands, and they'd already talked to them, they'd already looked under the hood, every one of these companies. They could have bought them already and taken over the licenses for a song compared to what they're ponying up for the next 20 years. And they would have had no competition because they could have taken out all the companies off the bat. The plan is fanatics, fanatics, fanatics. And they're not going to hire Tops to make. Tops isn't doing that. They have soccer. They have other things they can make. They're not going to do these things as a favor to help out Panini for a few percent royalty or something. There's no chance. What was the percentage of Tops of the money that came in from baseball? 
Like, was that half of their money? Well, see, here's, here's the um, – I don't know what percentage baseball gets from tops, but what I'll tell you is the deal, again, they said it was – I think Tony Clark said it was ten times the amount. Potentially. But that's also – I think he's talking about the amount of money. But when you compare a 20-year deal to a four-year deal, which is what tops deals were, you're already at five times if they pay the same. So it really could just be $40 million instead of twenty. You don't know. We don't know what happened. I hate to even speculate. But what we do know is Michael Rubin is very smart. Probably smarter than any five of us combined. He's just, and I've talked to him. He's a smart dude. They have a master plan, and I think if it was buying all the companies, they could have already done that. The money doesn't matter. They're going to be worth $30 billion. $4 billion doesn't matter. Why would you want RC Cola when you can have classic Coca-Cola? If the only soft drink available is, and they think, like you guys, some of you, that logos don't matter, <laughs> that logos matter, if we really have that mentality, we're going to condition people that your only choice is RC Cola. The Coca-Cola is no longer a choice because the can's blue now instead of red. We're going to tell them that that's not okay. It has to be a red can Take Coke to be okay. To <laughs> no, we're going to say it has to be a red can Coke or it's not okay. really a Coke. So you're you telling know? me but uh, by them losing the license, it, the, the company didn't lose any value? Um, I think it lost suitors for sure. I mean, we lost the SPAC. And, and it looked like A-Rod was buying Panini. That probably is not going to happen. Their, their debt, their bonds were downgraded big time. But I can tell you, but I can tell you that we have had multiple suitors and we ended up walking away from a deal that we were about to do because we think it's bullish. We were about to sell 80% of our company for more money than I ever dreamed of. And I'm that bullish. I walked away from it. Well, I mean, been, I can tell you there's... You've been validated. There's, there, this whole thing has changed. And the other thing is, and we can't get on this because this is next show, the companies can still use the logos and go to court over it. Because Upper Deck in the past has challenged the law and they were going to win. But we're because pressured to back down by the Because they're fighting NFL. for their life now. Yeah, but there's, there's, laws that, there's actually a case law that protects you can use the logo on the jersey without permission. You just can't put it down in the bottom of the card. And I think from talking to Topps and Panini, I would not be shocked if you see all three of us using logos in 2026 and saying, come and get us. And you may see three but companies you, band together, and Upper Deck maybe if they're not already acquired or But something. you don't have the rights to the individuals. You don't have rights to the players. We'll sign players. Yeah, how's that going to work? 90 per, 90% of the demand in the market is for players who are not in the majors right. or who we can sign right before they go to the majors to two-year deals so we can use them when they're young. Okay. That's the key. The hobby is driven by the youth. It's not driven by Paul Goldschmidt anymore. And I know there's people who collect him. That's super. But, like, go buy Fanatics cards of him. That's super. That's not where the money is. Mm-hmm. The money's in Trevor Lawrence, not, you know, Brian, pick your, Brian, Philip Rivers. Brian, out of curiosity, we know, we know Leaf does not have locals on cards. And so we'll establish that as a fact. And I realize you probably don't get many complaints because the people know that. But what percent of any of the people who write into you or call or email or whatever talk about you guys, I won't buy any more of your products because it doesn't have a logo on it. Well, I don't want to monopolize the so I'll, I'll answer that real fast and I'm happy to bow out. I think very few people call and say, we're pissed you don't have logos, we're angry you don't have logos. What they say is, God, I wish you had logos. You just make such beautiful cards. If you had logos, you'd be unstoppable. And what I tell them is the things you love about my product, I couldn't do if I had logos. I can't put Trevor Lawrence in every case if I have logos because they take 22% off the top. You're getting all this great content because I don't have to deal with that. So you decide, do you want ink on the card from the player or do you want ink on the helmet? You decide which one matters to you. And that's it. And customers make that decision. And the beautiful thing, like you said, Dr. Beckett, people are going to come into this hobby in droves. You also, Jeff. They're going to come in in a big way and they're going to have no preconceived notions. And the beauty of collecting, as I've heard you say before, Rich, is people can buy whatever they want. Yes, I say that many times. And I think it's awesome. And you don't buy my stuff if you don't like it, but if you do, do. And it's all good. 
And that's a win, right? Brian, we're blessed to have your perspective here. Any other, any dissent from that? Again, thanks, Brian, for your first-hand perspective. Okay, well, let's, let's go to the next question then. And thank you, everybody. Why don't we do the future marketplaces, including uh, eBay and PWCC? We're going to do positive tone here, but uh, this was Jeff's question. Thank you, Jeff. And the way I looked at it, I mean, I, I think Fanatics loves to sell other people's stuff. And they like to participate. They like to get a piece of, I mean, they're, they, they have a business model. And uh, deep in, embedded in the announcement was that the leagues and the players associations and fanatics, they're going to be sharing, they, they want to be sharing even in the secondary market, which is where the big bucks are, I think, mm-hmm. in this industry, not, not off the line, uh, unopened wax. Right. How do you get involved in a, a card that once it gets out of their hands, gets sold over and over and over again? I mean, how do they? Well, two ways. One is blockchain, you know, right. where there's a chain of custody. And it, that requires, you know, the non-physical card, I think. And the second way is to control the marketplaces. And to be the approved marketplace. Auction site that they've had testing for as long as they've lived practically. That goes full-blown, and then you just offer really cheap or introductory rates to consign your product or whatever you have that they've sold you back to them. Doesn't stop the the card shows, right? No, but it's it's the same thing as as you look at, like, ComC, PWCC, or PropSteam. They just become another arm, which takes from everyone. Well, to Brian's point from before, I mean, could Fanatics not buy ComC? Could they not buy PWCC, Starstock, anybody, Beckett Marketplace, you know, any, put them all together. I don't know what they'd have. It'd be a melange, but <laughs> but they'd have, uh, they'd have the cards coming and going. I was looking at it from a different viewpoint. Most mornings, I walk at Willow Bend Mall. If I remember correctly, Fanatics owns Lids. Yes. There's a lid store in Willow Bend Mall right next to the food court. When I walked by it the other day, I started envisioning redesigning the store slightly to put a base to put a card section where not just selling caps, but in a good retail location that they've already owned selling cards in an already established retail location. You can advertise it, and as the new products come out, you can sell some of it at a retail location that you've already amortized the cost of. You already are paying the rent. You're already paying there. You can redesign the store, and that's just one example of using what you already have to sell more products. So I was thinking that's a brilliant move that all of a sudden you've got all these places that exist that are selling your product already, just add another division because if they're coming in to buy caps with sports logos on it, they're already sports people. You use it to, to have a, a drop-off for consignment. Yeah. You I instantly see. have a store in cool. every neighborhood that could uh, anybody could reach that they literally just they drop it off. There's no mailman involved. There's no nothing. It's just you dropped it off so the store. So it's like fulfilled by Amazon be fulfilled yes. by mm-hmm. Fanatics. Mm-hmm. Except with poor customer service experience, exactly. most likely in an uneducated <laughs> staff. Because anyone who knows anything about cards can make a lot more money than working at Lids, okay. probably. But the breakdown is because of the SKUs. Mm-hmm. You know, you have your market movers. You know, you can do thousands of cards. The problem is there's millions of cards. 
you know, and so keeping track of all, you know, but unopened product, yes. That's what I'm thinking. That's what will happen in the that's lids. What I'm about. It's but if somebody unopened. comes in and says, I want an 87 McGuire, a certain you, person. You put barcode on every single one or QR code on every single one of your cards. Easy. You scan it. It's in the system. But I would rather just start with an open. Why do singles? That's not going to be, you're not going to want to do 1987 Mark McGuire second year no. card. But you are going to want to do 2026 Fanatics Chrome or whatever the term is and sell the boxes in your store already. You're not going to want to deal with singles cards. You just want to deal with the unopened there. Maybe you'll have another place where... No, they, but maybe they do because they do. The, once the cards get opened and it starts churning, secondary. that's where the secondary market is about mostly individual cards. Like in there, there's a lot of action for unopened. But once they get opened, I think Fanatics and the leagues want to get a piece of that too. And they can probably set up places thereof to do that too. Or Fanatics owns other places. You can, yeah, Brian, you're right. Most of the people, but if you have, as Angela says, QR code, you know, all the codes, they don't have to be real smart to sell the cards. I'm not sure they really want the money from the single cards. I think what they want is they don't want I boxes to be $100 factory cost mm -hmm. and distributors sell them for 300 and stores sell them for 700 they, That is a problem. And that is, that is hurting. And it, it, just, it is what it is. Demand's too big. We can't make more products. None of us can. It's a big problem. We can't make more. So that's it, the secondary market. That, you're I think that's about. the secondary market. The second they're concerned about that's the easy open, money. Open. And how you do that is you crush people in our hobby. That's how you make the money they need. Well, no, I'm saying here's how you do it. You cut out the distributors because they're making a lot of money. You cut out retail stores. Why would you let the retail store make that margin when you've got the best website in the history of sports? When you control, you can tax. That's the, but that's the All problem. All you have to do is serially number, you know, make unique numbers for each box. And it has to, it, it's, if it's registered and you sell it with a $400 markup, you've got to give them 100 bucks or whatever. I think they want all the money. Well, I... I would not be they shocked if they want it all. And as a loyal, addicted, crazy base that we are, we're going to pay them probably. Because we're already paying the distributors and the dealers. That's scary to me. That's scary to me to think that stores could be in jeopardy when people are going out opening stores right now. That makes me want to vomit. Because people are spending their life savings to open stores. This is a, these people have to really think about the pivot because the stores and the distributors, their business models are at risk. David Adams and blowout cards. Their business models are at risk. Every one of these guys' business models are at risk, and it may turn out just fine. They may step up and say, you know what, this is a great system. Let's keep this system. We'll just raise all the prices to try to get the juice out before it gets to the public. But I'm telling you, everybody needs to be thinking about this because there's going to be a lot of dancing that's going to have to happen because everybody is at risk. And the great thing is Fanatics hasn't said one word at all. We have no clue. That's the beauty of this. We have no, we're just speculating. We have no idea. But the whole distribution model is at risk, and I think single cards are the least of our problems. There may not be anybody we know to sell them where we live. We may have to go on the Fanatic site and buy them. That's the scary part. I hope it doesn't go to that. But that really may be the only way you can buy cards now. Is going Because Fanatics, is, they have an incredible distribution system. Incredible, the best website ever. They've got everything they need to take the process from day one to day 30, and it's over. It's, that's, that's a big picture thing we've got to get our arms around. The good news, I'm optimistic that the world's not over, that it will be, turn out somewhere in between. So but it could be really bad. They're rational, but they're monopolists. I think they need. I think they want and need to make every penny possible, and their partners definitely are going to want to. The idea that a distributor could make fifty or sixty million dollars a year, as I heard Ken Golden quote, mm -hmm. if that's true, they're not going to be okay with that. They're going to decide how much, and that's what people who have strong market positions do. They decide what people are allowed to make. 
You decide what's okay for people to make in your food chain or you just take them out of the food chain. And that's what we have to really just be open-minded. Again, not be negative, but just be aware that there's risk all over the place. And fortunately, it'll probably be somewhere in between not throw the baby out with the bathwater. And I pray it's not because we've done a lot of work to build this thing. We've paid our dues. And it's all at risk. For almost every person. Because what's the show going to look like if there's no wax? Or if prices from the manufacturer are double or triple? Everything can change how it looks. And you just have to be open-minded to what new things could look like. Like no logos. You have to have that same kind of, <laughs> kind of open-mindedness, right? You've seen everything, haven't you, Dr. Beckett? Yeah, I'm just concerned that the dollar boxes are going to be three dollar boxes. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to have to get back. I feel it, man. Hey, with the way these inserts are, you may have boxes where you get like one card every six boxes. <laughs> Five of them are empty for all you know. This thing could go anywhere. <laughs> Any other comments about that? that again, it's a very stimulating thing. Well, the, the future of our marketplaces, I mean, you were talking about eBay, and I, I know that uh, Jeff's probably more an expert on this because you're a partner. Sponsor. Yeah. Um, they seem like they're very active of, of uh, consolidating and cleaning up the, the space and adding more technologies. It seems like they're very active in, in making it a better, uh, better place to surf. Um, I don't know who else would be doing that, but it seems like they're actively doing something there. Um. So I will speak with that. So I, I communicate with eBay mm-hmm. more times than I think I would like to do consistently in a week. Um, but they are, they are very adamant about like really, in, not necessarily I would say investing more, but very consciously trying to be active in the hobby more so than they have been. They, they have a lot of intention to like be around and be very in part of the community. So, I mean, maybe you can speak more to this, but like, I, I only see this as causing eBay to want to be even more so active and, and being quote unquote, I guess the original for the, the people that have been around in the hobby forever, that you can trust eBay, you can work with eBay, like eBay would be, the, would be your best friend at this point in time. I will say for card shows, because I know that was one of the things that you brought up, I, I mean, I might be wrong on this on, on economics, but in, in my opinion, if, if Fanatics is trying to control the secondary market in the sense that they're trying to hold boxes, right? I think that as, as somebody who's making the boxes, you're aware of which products could probably sell for more. So you're more likely than not going to take those rare elite national treasure-like boxes, make them very expensive, and that's your price point. But they don't fluctuate, right? So that's the price point. That's what it is. So if people buy that box, I think card shows would actually be way bigger than what they are now because you're not then dealing with fanatics. You're not dealing with going and paying the fees, the fanatics fees or the eBay fees or any of those types of fees. You're doing in-person dealing and you have possibly the ability to buy cards for cheaper than you would have it on fanatics. I mean, it's the same thing that I see, you know, every time we go to these card shows, we pull up comps, we see how expensive they are, and then you negotiate. I think in that sense, you're putting the power in the actual collector's hands, the investor's hands, whatever you call yourself, you're putting the power in the person's hands to make their own deal. So I think that would actually drive in-person sales more than it would if, I mean, I just, I just see it as being a benefit to a card show, to be absolutely honest. That's my take on it. I think in-person deals, as I see every time we go and make deals, it's about, it's about talking to each other. It's about making a price that people feel comfortable with. I think, I think you're just going to end up seeing 
a lot more card shows and a lot more people at tables with singles. Maybe ne- maybe less wax, but m- definitely more singles, definitely more cards that they want to try and wheel and deal because then they're taking 100% of that profit and they're not working on a secondary market with consignment. Fair. I like that. I like you're talking about people looking for other means to save money or not spend as much as if fanatics were to monopolize the industry. Oh, it's also looking at it as like sticking it to the man. Yeah, but I'll be honest with you. PSA showed me what this industry is about. They jacked those prices up to areas I never fathomed <laughs> possible and at the national. People were paying $600 to get cards, one single card grade. I never thought I'd see anything like that. So that's proof positive. People are going to pay whatever it takes to get what they want, no matter what. And they're increasing value, right? Well, yeah, if they think they can make money on whatever it is, they're going to just pay whatever it takes, whether it's out of their savings or a credit card or sell a kidney, whatever it takes, you know? Not. <laughs> but uh, the PSA proved to me this hobby does whatever it takes. What's the unfortunate it? proof that we are shifting from a hobby to a business? Mm-hmm. We have shifted, but now even those most in denial are having to come around and say, this is not. And the people opening stores are not young hobbyists who just had a few bucks and loved collecting cards. They're smart people with a lot of money. I met with people at the National, they are so smart. They're Ivy League or elite school grads who said, I can make money in this market because of its inefficiencies. Mm-hmm. And those inefficiencies may have just changed. And so the, well, the whole rules have changed. Overnight, not yet, we have five years notice, but, <laughs> but they're changing. Kelly's acting like it's gonna be a little more commoditized. There'll be a price. There'll still be an opportunity for a little bit of negotiation, but if the price of the unopened box is the price, mm-hmm. From fanatics and they really control it then it takes away some of the dynamic element that we see now again we see the ugly side of it when people can charge more but but I mean, part of the charm of the industry is that it's a little bit disorganized a little bit unregulated you know. I tell people all the time that the card industry, the card business doesn't operate like a normal business and adding fanatics into this just makes it act more like a normal business rather than a card business which is just has some Apple rules to it. Yeah. We didn't used to see that price inflation on wax 10 years ago. No. I mean, your, your you know, manufacturer suggested retail price is what it would sell for. This is the, the only industry where your inventory appreciates. Right. And if you raise the price of something, right. it increases the demand. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I, mean, I, I, think, I think the yes. point is that... And if we you did. had a grade and it grades well... Even more, another bump. Uh, I mean, I would say that the collecting yeah. industry is not even just the baseball card industry. Because speaking as a hobbyist in more than just cards, um, it, you know, if Nintendo announces a new console tomorrow, demand is instantly through the roof. They can price it at two ninety nine. People are going to buy it and sell it for six hundred later. You see the PS five for sale in the other room for seven ninety nine. It retails for four ninety nine. You know, where they can't meet demand of everybody that wants it, however, um, if you keep it unopened or if you you can immediately turn around and make more money than they did when they sold it to you. That's why actually the most fair way to, to do this all is what StockX did about a year and a half ago with Bowman as an experiment with the Dutch auction, but it wasn't the way the Panini's currently doing their Dutch auction. It's a real Dutch awful, auction. Awful for the hobby. 
Um, it was the way, it was, it was a fair Dutch auction where it was, you know, they had a thousand boxes for sale and whatever the thousandth bid was, was the price that everybody, everybody paid. That's so what it a Dutch auction used to mean. Yeah. <laughs> and so that was, that was, I thought, I thought that was an extremely fair way of doing it. In, you know, that, by the way, that entire sales strategy, it was created by Josh Luber. And I talked to him extensively and he, he said, Jeff, this is the future of how wax is going to be sold. He's like, we're going to do this test run with Tops, and Tops is going to love this, and Panini's going to love this, and they're going to, this is going to be the future. Like, we're going to get them on board, and, and we're going to do these IPOs of wax releases for all these major products. That was his vision. And he could never get Panini and Tops along for the vision. They only did it that one time, and then they never did it again. He couldn't get Tops on board, he couldn't get Panini on board. Panini, Panini actually stole his vision, but it's, then decided, oh, well, we're going to bastardize this and make a lot more money out of it by not going with, you know, you pay what you pay and there's no refunds and then it finally sells out. And um, I would not be surprised if when Fanatics comes out that that is how all wax is sold. But, but you're right, it brings up the very interesting question about card shops and all that stuff. Well, there's two, two questions. Number one, for you, if you do this IPO, you realize the Prism Basketball IPO is $40 million or $50 million or $60 million. We've never had to have that much liquidity shoved into a one or two week period and an organized sale on one place. Our <laughs> hobby's never had that much happen at one time in one place. And that might not go as clean as we think. It could get really messed up with the blowouts of the world saying, I'll take a thousand cases. To the, the individual hobbyists will get nothing. The other problem with your system on the uh, Nintendos and such, and I hate to say this as a manufacturer, it's very damning. We like when our stuff trades at a premium. Mm -hmm. Now, we want to make some of that money, obviously. We love that idea, and that's what Fanatics is going to do. Yeah. But we, we encourage it. We put less out in the marketplace than we know the marketplace can handle because we want you to go pay two. and I hate it, but we want you to go pay two fifty for that $100 box. And that's when people come to me and go, man, you killed it with that product. I crushed with it. Well, of course you did. I made it scarce on purpose so that you would pay a premium for it you did great with it yeah and i think that's the problem i don't think nintendo wants you to go pay double that's just how it works especially with the chip shortage right now they probably really don't mean it but we we encourage it in our business and that's where we're a unique industry that you know and I, I i love what he does that the idea of the auction i think it's fantastic i'm scared that when you start having collectors bidding against dealers bidding against mm -hmm. This could be a mess. And I think collectors lose. But I'll also bots. point out that yeah, and Josh bots. is the now named as the head of the sports card division. So he's yeah. already got experience. And from what I understand from people who were credible, he was walking around the show this, yesterday. And he was. He was. With a hoodie, hoodie on. No, With a yeah. hoodie on, and if I remember the star stock. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. I, I, he passed by my table for about three seconds. Yeah. I didn't say mm -hmm. anything. But, yeah. he, was but trying he, to was, he was being yeah. incognito. So he's really... Digging in as quiet, just like you did when you were walking around the shows, digging in as quietly as possible to learn more, which is really a benefit. I'm glad to see that. I wish I, I wish I had stopped him to say hi, but I'm glad to see that he's digging in on the quiet level, the level where he's coming in as an average customer, okay. know, to see what average people are doing. And that's very encouraging. Another note to self. Get a hoodie for the next show. <laughs> okay, this next one is is uh, Victor's, uh, the rookie card specialist about base and parallel rookie cards. Victor, why don't you motivate this? You know, for the for the record here, of what you're seeing, because you're you're a big fan. 
you're sentimentally in favor of base rookie cards because yes. of the history, and yet there's a tension in the air now with so many alternatives that are slightly different. I'm trying to explain it to my wife. This is this is the same as that almost exactly, but it's ten times as rare and ten times as valuable. <laughs> so what what's your sentiment on this? And yeah, it's it's really if, if you look at how the parallel has evolved. Parallels and, plural. Parallels, <laughs> correct. In 1991, it was much simpler. It was bronze, silver, gold, and that was the extent of it. But I recall there was some debate back then whether parallels are considered rookie cards. For a moment there, the hobby had decided that no, parallels cannot be considered true rookie cards. Well, it's evolved. Parallels are more prevalent and what we have today is kind of a repeat of what we've seen in the past. We have a good concept, but then we overdo it. And, and what happens then, it becomes devalued. Uh, I remember very clearly when the relic cards first came out with the jersey swatch and all that in the mid 90s. That was all the rage. Hobby collectors, we loved it. We begged for it, asked for it. Manufacturers gave us all we can eat. You want jersey swatches? You got them. What happened to those, right? And my concern then is in the amount of parallels today, where I did a little bit of research on, on 2018 Prism, and we had over 40-something parallels of Luka Doncic. And so now, this, is, this fancy card is all the rage, and it should be, it's a beautiful card, don't get me wrong, they're gorgeous. But now you got a base, and it's, Eh. What's your solution, though, uh, Victor? I mean, what, well, I, mean, uh, I, have, I have my ideas, but I, that's why I, I brought it to the table here, because I'd love to know. Not everybody thinks it's a problem. Okay. It's over 130 different parallels in select football this year. It's become a problem. <laughs> it's become a problem. 130, over 130 different parallels of the same cards. And that's just one product. In select football. <laughs> well, you got to remember, there's more collectors in there, too. they got to make more product. There's more people coming. So there is. So you got to, it seems like a lot if we keep thinking five years ago and how many collectors in it. There's more collectors now, and there's going to be more and more coming. I like the parallels. I think they're cool, and especially when you get, like, a color match, the blue, I'm gonna go always back to my Dallas Cowboys, the Dallas Cowboy jersey, whatever it is, right? But I mean, that's the only reason I stopped trying to learn. When I was trying to learn parallels, I'm trying to explain it to other people. That's why I created the poster for Luca. So I have every parallel in there, trying to explain to them that this only comes out of the Target box, this only comes out of the Walmart <laughs> box, this only comes out of the Mega, this comes out of here. And I'm actually breaking it all down what packs they come in and how many were produced all of it so I can. I have it printed so I can show people this thing. I'm almost done with this. It's taking a lot more work than I thought I was going to. <laughs> but I like the idea of it. I do think there needs to be a balance in it, right? I mean, they've taken a really cool idea and went too far with the select, because I really like the select. But now I'm kind of in the same boat where you are on it. But I, I like the parallels. If Fanatics is owned in effect, at least partially, or the, the business relationship involves the Players Association, do players not like it? Do players think it's bad that they've got a hundred different versions of their rookie card? I don't think they care. They don't care. I deal with them. I they they care enough to keep the one of ones. Well, Giannis <laughs> keeps all of them. What are you talking about? Giannis keeps I mean, one of everything. We're not dumb, so of 
course. They're going to keep what, what they want. So it's... In 1991, I bought 100,000 Upper Deck Kevin Reimer rookies for two cents from scoreboard. If that's what you want, that's where we're at without parallels. Because can you imagine the prison print runs with no parallels? That Luca card would be worth, instead of 750 in a PSA 10, it'd be worth about 100 and a quarter, 150. It'd be watered down to the point to where, yes, there'd be more demand for the base rookie. There'd just be too many. And, co- and consumers would be bored out of their bo- How many boxes would you really open? You're like two boxes, and I've seen everything. Right. And unfortunately, I'm with, I'm, as a purist, mm-hmm. I still love 1960 sets where I've got, or 53 Bowman color, whatever it is, where I've got one of every card, maybe an occasional variation, like two cards in the set had some minor variation. That was great. But that was like so 60 years ago. Like we're at a different point. The number of, the amount of product being sold is too big. We've gone from five parallels in metal football to about 35. And that's just my little company who makes unlicensed without the logos. We, we make 35 parallels of metal football. But we had to because the collector experience was getting really old. With the production levels, we got up to making 2,000 cases of products with just six different parallels. Like every box starts feeling the same. Once you open a case, you're pretty much done. Mm-hmm. And I think we just, we've grown. So the choice is we can either go back to the days of everything is so cookie cutter. It's a seven, 792 card set. Mm-hmm. And we're trading things in thousand count blocks or hundred count blocks. Or we can have it where we're trading one. It's just in a big block holder now. And I think we have to decide. It's a hard one. And I'm with you. I, from In my heart, I'm a purist. But I really don't want to have to buy 100,000 Kevin, Kevin Reimer rookies at two cents again speculating. I'd rather just buy a $25 Bowman Chrome Auto, you know, or a blue refractor. Well, I just wanted to interject about, like, as a collector, from a collector's point of view, it turns me off. When I want to own a Luka Doncic, but unless I get a sweet parallel or an auto or something, it's like, eh, all right, you know. And then people also look at it as, oh, it's just a name. Like, you know, I cracked it fresh. <laughs> It ain't my fault. Like, I'm just happy I uh, ripped it and I have one, but it's an eight. So I get turned off by the fact that these base cards are devalued almost like it's ho-hum. Well, if you're a collector, it shouldn't even matter the value of it. If you like the cards, you like the card. No, my point is I get turned off a little bit from modern cards. And this is what pushes me more towards vintage and pre-war because I don't have to worry about that. I'm happy with owning a three or four. And they're scarce because, you know, you could look at the pop reports, you know, there's not that many around. But with the modern cards, it's almost like you get poo-pooed if you own a base. And it's right. just like, it sucks as right. a collector because I'm like, I want to feel a little bit more pride towards owning some of these cards. But it's almost like the industry, like, frowns on just simple base cards. I, I, I disagree on that. Yeah, I was just going to say that, you know, it's, it's base cards are like the medium with which to produce, to deliver the parallels to the consumer. <laughs> Much like when you eat a burrito and you got the sauce on it, the burrito is just the medium to get the sauce to your mouth. Like, it's, it's really what it is. So you have to make the, you have to consider the market segmentation that some of us are going to have different, different discretionary spending amounts, you know, and that, that, that spectrum is endless, really. And so the 130 plus parallels captures a, a wide variety of different, different market segments and so guys who are just coming out of college who are just trying to get a job they have this amount of money holdings company owners have this amount of money and everybody in between which is mostly the bell curve of us right and so you've got 
and able to capture the attention span of all those different segments. And I think that's where most of the parallels come in to, to as a benefit. And you can still enjoy the base cards, just like, hey, it's a base, it's non-refractor base chrome, still a great card. You know, don't let everybody else's, you know, obsession with that in fact, <laughs> impact your own appreciation for standard base cards. Because I'm, I'm a big fan of 80s junk wax. I buy, bought a bunch of Barry Bonds base cards today that were rookie year. And that's just a standard card. There's yeah. no parallel, but parallels didn't really take off until the 90s anyway. It's, so it's not diluted. The print runs from the 90s, that's diluted. Today's print runs are not that big of a deal, really, compared to the 90s. And I actually think it's kind of cool to have the Luca hoops and the Luca, the I actually have all of them in tents, all the bases, in a display on my desk, because I actually think it's cool to have all the base ones that are not parallel. And it's, I was actually, my goal was to get all the bases in tents. So I actually liked that. I thought that was fun. How many times in the hobby have we seen too much of a good thing becomes... I mean, you could say that with probably any trend that's happened, right? The game news you brought up earlier, the 90, 97 upper deck and the leaf following short after with the first patches with the Thomas collection. And then 19, in 2004, literally the most probably saturated year of all of cards ever. There's so many products and so many products within the, the brands and so many of those had like, what is it, 2004 Diamond Kings, there's over 100 parallels in that product alone per card. So you have so much so much variety and it kind of turned a lot of people off with okay we get it like we gotta have we have enough relic cards in the market now but that was just 2004 relic cards are still being made now and so that's like but that's just one trend one of ones i mean has, has the one of one lost luster it's almost like we see one of ones in bargain bins now yeah, you know and so it's like pick a trend it, it peaks and it rolls out and asymptotically just kind of goes so out it, it is what it is right now yeah. and i think you're lamenting you, is it going to get worse? I don't know that it's going to get worse. I, I pitched a concept to Brian uh, last show of if there was a debate that I could take, and I think he could take either position, and I could take either, so we could flip a coin. But the proposition would be this, that if there was a 50% market correction, not exactly across the board, but a lot of things dropped in half tomorrow morning. Some things drop more, some things drop less. Would this, the rarer Luca drop a higher percentage than the base? Would the 56 tops Mantle 3 that you showed me, would that drop more percentage-wise than the 7 or 8 Mantle? And I think you could argue either way. And if Brian said, I think it's the, the rare cards, everybody's going to still want them. Yeah, but they just dropped in half. Well, the last market correction we just had, the Luca color held up. While well, Luca Prisms got smacked in the butt, and it's the same picture. The only difference is the color of the borders. Okay, you're, but yeah, you're right. Jumping in, I'm just saying you could argue it either way. You can't. If for you sure. want to argue it that way, I, I do think there could be a coming thing. There are a lot of people that want to have a Tom Brady rookie card, mm -hmm. and it's just you know they, they can't get one of the contenders. They, they, they have to get something, and so they're they, so I think I won't say you're safe, Victor, but you know I I'm a purist too. You I mean, know, there there ought to be so the, the base rookie is a, is a, is a, an esteemed card. So the general consensus is is that it's not a problem. No, it I mean, is what uh, it is. Uh, it's a problem. The for market some floats. Mm -hmm. If the market kind, of, but you don't know. In five years, it might be the people say, "Why am I paying ten times as much for this parallel when almost exactly the same thing?" And they're both pretty common. 
Four years ago, they threw flagship in the trash, and now they actually grade Tatis 410s. That card would have meant nothing. Tatis rookie year number 410, that card would have meant nothing four years ago, five years ago. But today, people grade the card because there is an appreciation for that and tops update and base prism. And I think what Dr. Beckett's saying is taste and the way we view things, we look like three feet in front of us, and that's like all the vision we have. Mm -hmm. And I don't blame us because there's so much crap going on, it's hard to really want to look past that. But when you use 10 or 15 year vision, tastes and preferences are gonna change. And your preferences, as he is saying, I think they are very safe. Because that base card's not gonna lose interest completely ever. Here's the other concept. Arm's length grading, you know, eye appeal. This is an eye appeal, it's not artificial intelligence. It's, this is eye appeal. Well, that also applies to base card versus special treatment card. At this distance, maybe 18 inches, whatever, some of those differences you can't tell. Why are you gonna pay more for something you can't tell? In grading and in these parallels. If the parallel's too subtle, you know, from prism to, to prism silver to the, to the base, you know, well, unless you're reflected, wanna, it's not that much different to pay a, 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 a big multiple. I also want to point out, and we have a card manufacturer here that we're happy to have, that if I remember correctly, you can make as many parallels as you want of a card as a card manufacturer because you're doing the same image. Therefore, you're also only paying for the photograph once instead of having to pay for, if you do 20 inserts, you're buying 20 different to the photographer. photographers. That's true too, I mean, it is a shortcut. And I think that's what probably Donner's did in 2004. Their vision was why pay for 80 different photos, and it's more forms. Doing a PMS change on the color or changing the foil, that's 1,500 bucks each time we change it. But to do running a whole other form, you're talking about a 25 or 50K expenditure every time we do a new 100 up. So that's a factor. The last thing I'd say on your thing, not to dis. This hobby lately, the growth in wax demand has been driven by the stories of a guy who opened a box and pulled a million dollar card or a hundred thousand dollar card. That never happens again. When the parallels go away, and I would argue that the growth of our industry in the last five years, besides the increase in value of existing assets like vintage dub, these stories draw people in by droves. They really, people hear about these cards at auction and how this guy at a card show opened one box and he got an $80,000 card. There will never be another $80,000 card without paralleling to stupid degrees. And here's, here's what I bring to the table, Brian, on that argument. Parallels, I get it, they're, a ne- they're necessary. They add value to the box, they add value to the collector, I get it. My proposal is on preserving the rookie card. How do we do that? I'm a big advocate for what ComC does. How about we change that RC symbol on the parallel to PRC, parallel rookie card. Rookie year. Rookie, rookie year. year on the inserts, putting an RY instead of RC. The collectors are not gonna want that. I don't want my blue deck not to have an RC or whoever. I want to be the exact same card, just with a different color on it. That's well, you, you, when you look at Patrick Mahomes, he's a, a, a star that's playing now, all of his bases were something. I have a whole bunch of it, so it's not it's not like it's not worth anything, and people don't want it. I actually have a lot of his different base cards, and I'm very proud to have them. And they're nice, and I think they're great looking designs. I don't have to have a parallel of it. I don't think it's the parallels are going to be certain people chasing. There's going to be certain people that want bases. I don't think the bases are gone. I still like base, but I still like exciting parallels as well. I think you get them all. So, so you're saying 
there should be exciting parallels and base and get rid of the stuff in the middle. <laughs> so you got a hundred to work with. We're going to get rid of the the ones that are number two high. Well, uh, so we'll keep the one of ones. What, what I've been t- meaning twenty one again ones. was that you know you, you've had prism and select and optic with forty, fifty, sixty, hundred and however many parallels. Okay. At a certain point, it's Panini going to the school kids' aisle, grabbing the Crayola box, and saying, okay, we have 128 colors to work with. They're all blue. <laughs> okay, but there's a difference. You know, I'm not saying that we have to go back to, as I answered a ticket earlier today, 2002 Tops Chrome, where there's only the refractor and the black to 50. I'm not saying we have to go to that. But at the same point... You, there, 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 there has to be some midpoint where you're not just creating colors to create a parallel. It's not gonna happen. Also, please, tops like make the parallels very specific, or, or at least like name them on the back. <laughs> because no, light blue versus, I wish blue like versus purple. <laughs> yeah, yeah. light blue versus blue is heritage. not descriptive yeah. enough. Well, we t- we <laughs> talked about market inefficiencies. Yeah. Take those parallels and zig instead of zag, or zag instead of zig, and buy up base while base. Mm-hmm. While base prism cards of guys are three dollars, mm-hmm. when a graded card is eighty or blue is one twenty, hoard up those cheap cards because it's okay to zag, and you're a zagger in this current market, and that's okay. They're, that's good. We've seen zaggers have made a lot of money and gotten great prices on the cards they did buy if they weren't caring about selling it or investing. They got great prices because they zag when everybody zigs. Oh, that's absolutely. It's true. proven to this, be the best strategy for investing is when people are selling your buy. This this hobby is very follow the leader, very um, <laughs> irrationally. Was, I mean, there was the you know iconic car chase that was taking place in January and February, and all these iconic Kobe cars and MJ cars. And they were just you know just these incredible you know week over week increases. And I was hearing you know people on Twitter and you know. And, Everyone's saying, you know, ultra modern cards are dead. No one's ever going to buy ultra modern again. Every, you know, these are all, the, and then those cards are, you know, down 60, 70%. And now what you hear is everyone, it's all low pop, low pop, low pop, low pop. Never buy a base card again. No one will ever buy a base card again. That's what everyone is saying right now. And I, 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 my opinion on it is, you know, if every if if every card that everyone's buying is like a pop three type card, and people are buying all of the, what you're really buying is cards that at one point in time were completely worthless, so only three people ever decided to grade it. <laughs> so congratulations that you got a pop three card from 2012. Why is that pop three? Because that was a worthless insert in 2012 <laughs> that not a single person sent off to ever get graded. That's why that's a pop three card today, not because there were only three ever printed. No, that was a common card. There was three ever graded. Congratulations, you got a low pop card. But that's the insanity that's taking place today. Somebody's paying $200 cards. now to get Correct. that card graded. Correct, and then meanwhile, base is languishing. And so I, I, you know, I'm not, I, I, I think Brian is, is, this is cyclical, and I think base cards will probably you know, have their moment in the sun. This again. might be the ultimate opportunity. Yeah, I yeah. think you buy base now because in four or five years when all the new Fanatics people come in, once they buy those new cards, and then what they do, they start going back and looking at Zion because they didn't have a Zion. They buy a Zion rookie. They go back and buy a Luca rookie. All these new people are going to start going back and purchasing these things, and it's going to bring all of them up again. And the memory is what Topps Chrome used to be and what Prism used to be. Trust me, there's this is a screaming. I mean, I'm, I'm very bullish on zagging right now. <laughs> Again, the, right. the, the thought is always the best chance of buying a card and having a double 
as if the card is rarer and more expensive. And I'm saying, I think you could make a case that it could be the other way around, that dealers sell what they have. They can't hype what they don't have. And base cards can more easily, uh, a $10 card can more easily double than a $10,000 card. That hasn't been the case here for a while, but we'll see. And breakers get rid of how much base? It just sits on tables at Nationals. I don't know where it goes, yeah. Okay, that's, that's uh, Victor, thank you. And I, I'm in your corner, but uh, I, like I said, I don't, I think we vote with our dollars, as, as people are saying. Okay, last question. The stigma of the word investing, I think it's an emotionally charged word. I, I'll grant you that, James. Is that a bad thing? The stigma of it that's attached to it is when you talk about collectors and the greed that's in the yeah. industry sullies the hobby through investment. Um, and then also people who don't think of it as a commodity because it's cardboard with paint on it. And they're like, how is that an investment? And I beg to differ when I buy a very nice card that's expensive and it's worth triple. Everyone's worried about 5X or 10X with the parallels especially or because it's a one of one. And you see pop reports and how is it not an investment? And also the fact that I'm a collector and I'm investing so much of my free time into looking up stuff and pop reports and going through Ebays and comps and going to these shows, I'm investing a lot of my time well, Okay, this. so are you saying that you think there's a significant percentage of the people you come in contact with who do not think it's a legitimate investment? I, I like hear 20%, it a lot. 30%? I hear it a lot. I, I, are they people that are buying cards? Yes. Collectors, yes. yes. People who, don't, who hate the greed in it who don't want to legitimize this hobby as an investment. Um, there's a stigma to it, and it sticks in my craw a little bit. Well, there's our, there are Karens that that's going to happen. I mean, I have a friend of mine that said, here's 50 grand, take it to the show. He, does, he goes, I don't know what to do with it. I know that you're going to do something where you have to take it in your pocket, go buy some cards. He knows nothing about it. So there's $50,000 that's being invested in it, and he doesn't know anything about it at all. He just believes he's watching what I'm doing and he's seeing the excitement. And he wants to figure out how to get something. And he says, just give me something that's going to hold. I'm going to put it in my safe and forget about it. Ange and Steph, you do a podcast with the leading proponent <sighs> on the other side of this issue. And Which is regretful that he's not in this room because he could hold his own. Well, but, me and him would have to step out the hall because we would be getting it on. <laughs> yeah, half this but room would automatically leave, though. So thanks, Ben. But I also think with Ben is that Ben... Here's the term, and tries to you look at it as purely the technical, not encyclopedia definition of the word. We in the hobby for 40 years or more have looked at investment as put the card away, put the case away, put the box away, or I think there is a market inefficiency, so let me take advantage of it. I mean, in 1982, I'd go to the Albany Card Show and I'd be buying Ricky Henderson and Eddie Murray rookies at a quarter each. Those were investments. But, and you know, they got to $15, $20. Thank you. But that was an investment thinking that was underpriced cards. It was real money. It's real money. So there's levels, people who were putting cases away. You know, we, we've talked about this guy, Charles Conlon, who's no longer with us, who socked away a bunch of 75 tops mini cases. Mini, yeah. 
he built an amazing collection based on trading cases and boxes and packs of 75 Topps Minis. I think our, most of us have the definition the way Jeff would use a definition to use the other Wilson brother example, where the Wilson brothers... Distant is, relatives, okay. They're distant relatives. The other Wilson brother looks at it a different way. They're twin sons of different mothers uh -huh. who look at things totally differently. But I think we have to decide what our definition of best is. Well, the, the good news is when, when, uh, when I started my channel two years ago, Sports Card Investor, and there was, it, it kicked up a lot of controversy early. There were a lot of people who were very angry in the comments. I was, I was honestly surprised. Um, I'm I pleased. I wasn't expecting. I guess you got a visceral response. I, it was there was a visceral response, and there were a lot of people that were passionate and really liked the show because they were like, "Thank you know, someone's someone's really talking about how I think of the hobby, dollars and cents, and all these things." But then there were a lot of angry people that were like, "You know, this is not an investment. This is not an investment. You're leading everybody the wrong way. This is horrible. You're you know, this is an investment." Ninety percent of those people have quieted down as any cards that they owned back then are now six to 12 times more valuable than they were. So I no longer hear from 90% of them. There's still a few stragglers, we named one, that seem to be on the opposite side of the camp still. I believe the argument is getting weaker and weaker by the day, which I'm enjoying. Um, but I mean, from the beginning, I never understood it because I'm like, okay, so is investing in Gold, not an investment, because what I mean, people do that professionally. That's accepted widely professionally, but what is that? That's a metal you pull out of the ground. People invest in diamonds. That's a huge business, and plenty of people invest in all kinds of rare commodities. People are investing. Major companies and funds and investment managers are investing huge money in cryptocurrency. Mm. Are you so? Is cryptocurrency like? It's like what technical definition are we using that? that, you know, oh no, a piece of cardboard can't possibly be an investment, but, you know, oh yeah, no gold, that's legitimate, and, and cryptocurrency and NFTs, those are okay, and no, no, like, it's all, it's, it's all a value store. It's all a perception. It is all what people are willing to pay for something, and there's a free market, and what the market decides something is worth. And when you have, a, when you have an item of any type, um, whether it's fine art, or whether it's vintage cars, alcohol. or whether it's, it's high-end alcohol, or whatever it is that people associate a value with and there is scarcity, and when those two things combined, people associate a value and scarcity, then that is going to be a dynamic market that over time has the ability to appreciate and more people are getting into the market. That's the definition of an investment. So I have never understood the argument and thankfully, it doesn't seem to be as much of an argument anymore. I think I, now- I, I think even Ben will agree. He's, he's in the minority position. Was, so okay. the and he doesn't mind. Was one monk in the room? I don't agree with him on everything, and that's one of them. Two, I uh, can't speak for him, but I think that he would agree that you can spend money to make money further. However, his kink in his craw is that the definition of investing is technically not what purchasing cards or purchasing a commodity is. He calls it an arbitrage. That's his definition. I'm not here to defend it. Um, but if he were not solely buying Oakland A's cards for his collection, he would agree that if I can buy a Mike Trout card for $50 and sell it for 100 that's a good thing. You make money, he can go then and spend the $100 on my, the Oakland A's. He has no disagreement in that. 
So Definitely. you're investing to invest in your collection. Yes. That's yes, what he is. So if I go so and buy a difference between <laughs> investor and a trader. So if I go so and buy a blaster and sell just trading from it and buy the twins that I could have gotten, sure I may have wasted twenty dollars. That's his point. You know, he'll purchase something, he'll sell what he needs, and then go buy what he wants instead of, well, no, but I have to have the top rookie and wait until the right moment and then sell it and then make the full maximum investment. Again, I don't disagree with you guys. Well, I came on the show, and we had a nice verbal <laughs> sparring that ended up shouting at points where we yelled yes, at each other. It was friendly, happens. but you know where we came <laughs> down? Friendly. Me and him have become kind of friendly on Twitter, and you know how we became friendly? is We came down on, we were just word parsing between investing and speculating. And, that's and at the end of the day, word. he wants us to say it's speculation. And you know what? I'm okay with speculation because crypto is absolutely oh speculation. There is no dividend, really. Half these things we buy, art, wine, well, you can enjoy them and all those other things, and that's, maybe that's your dividend, is the, the, the excitement of looking at this fantastic piece of cardboard. It is speculation. In that sense, he's right, but who cares? That's the idea is trading cards, so trading cards are a stored value place, just like any of these other alt investments, even some mainstream investments that we consider. We just can't cut up on the word parsing. We just have to say, people buy and sell these assets, they do tend to appreciate and depreciate in value, and those fluctuations are the sign of something that is at least speculative, if not an investment. And if we can pass the words, right. he even comes around, yeah. he'll be on your team if you say it's a speculation, no problem. Then you only have sports card radio that'll disagree with you. Because <laughs> we buy cards of grown men, that makes us some kind of pansy, because I collect a card with a man on it. But outside of that, we got Ben on our team. All we have to do is say it's a speculation, and I have no problem with that. Yeah, but sports card speculation doesn't, doesn't really... Well, no, first off... Not first card card you know, it doesn't really grasp no. the audience. But you know what? But you know what? Stocks, stocks for most people Stocks for most people now are a speculation also. Yeah. So even the things that we can say, that he would say are investments, they're speculations too. Day trade. You don't day trade investments in the sense that he wants you to think of it as an investment. He's thinking it kicks off dividends. There's a real company behind it. That's maybe, not how it is Maybe anymore. this coming of NFTs has indirectly really legitimized the investability of sports cards that you can hold in your hand. Mm-hmm. It's, made, it's made us look mainstream. It's <laughs> NFTs are what Ben really doesn't like. And Leaf NFTs launched really on September 9th. Oh, <laughs> on the Wax platform, you'll be able to buy Leaf NFTs, our first set of September 9th. I hate them, but we're going to offer them. But guess what? I hate redemptions. I hate redemptions. We got those too. I hate stickers. We got plenty of those. So it just sometimes you have necessary evils. We have NFTs. But I think you're right. It does make trading cards special. Again. Look like a, like a mainstream investment. Ben. <laughs> yeah. To your credit, your redemptions are a lot better than the rest of the other companies in the room. <laughs> I've redeemed one product through you arrived in seven days. Now, mind you, Grand Prairie to Irving isn't too far away. That's pretty good, though. <laughs> But I think, but I give Ben credit because listen, he's he's very he, at least he has a strong opinion on something instead of just being a guy who sits and complains in the corner. I'd rather someone give their opinion yeah. and gives and and we found out that our difference was really just words. Yeah. I mean, it was no, not the underlying idea that a card can go up in value or go down. He just didn't want me to act like I'm buying Apple. <laughs> he wanted me to acknowledge that I'm buying crypto, but James, or, except are, physical. Is, is your point is it about the semantics or do you feel like there's some disrespect? There's a lot of disrespect. There's people who act angry when you use the word. Just using it, like he said, it could be a choice of word, and my word is investment. 
oh, oh, and you get the pushback. And I'm like, excuse me? Like, what are we doing here? We're in the same hobby. Why are you acting like I'm your enemy? A lot of the people who don't like investor are people that are harmed by value appreciation. Because right. their dollar doesn't go as far as it did 20 years ago or five years ago or 30 minutes ago. You know, and that's the issue is I think there's always going to be a, you have fear of missing out and, they're not and you have pissed taxes. off because they missed out. Yeah. Pomo. And I think they're pissed off because they missed out or because they're not the type of personality that can speculate. It's just not in their DNA. The gamble or speculation or investment, that's not their thing. They want to buy their Texas Ranger cards. (laughs) No, they want to buy all the Texas Ranger cards, and they're angry because Luis Acuna, Luis Angel Acuna is $100 in Bowman Chrome. They don't understand. It makes no sense. He hasn't even played in the majors yet. And they are bitter because that card's $100 in a world where it used to would have been $5. And that bitterness is bitterness because they're missing out because it's just not in their DNA. And you can't let that phase you. Or you're going to have a really hard time focusing on your hobby or your business or whatever this is because you're going to be too worried about other people. You have to let it just bounce off and say the hobby's leaving them behind. I, I will say as a vendor at this show, and I think I'm the only one in this room that's a vendor today at the show, about half the people, and with the way my showcases and my boxes are set up, I look like I'm vintage. So I don't get to hear a lot of times for the new people, do you have, you know, I don't have the happy, shiny cards all displayed. But I'll get the requests for, do you have a Jim Brown rookie? Do you have a night train? I got actually a request for a night train lane rookie today. I got requests for Yaz rookie. I get a lot of requests for rookies. And they, and they know to look for the rookie cards on the old cards because those are the ones that seem to appreciate the most. And these are from people who don't know, but they, they know enough to ask for rookie card. You know, and so it makes it very interesting. You, so I actually know... When people come to my table, a lot of times, whether they're collectors or whether they're new, new people, based on the questions they ask me. And it's fine. I, I'm happy to work with a new person. I usually don't have what they want, but I'm happy, to, <laughs> I'm happy to talk to them. And I'm happy to talk to the people who come looking for the 369 deck of edges they need to finish their set. And Still looking. Yes. Roger didn't have them? Didn't have them. No. Uh, Kyle, how many people are walking in today that... that uh, think this is an investment. I've got to think it's a high percentage. I don't know that you're marketing it that way, but it's implicit, isn't it? With the with the publicity? I can tell you this right here, since we started doing this card show, but even years ago, we had a hard time getting new new investors out there and, or, or card collectors out there, whatever you want to refer to them. And I say, I give you guys credit in the media because this is this is great what you guys are doing. And But, but as far as as far as people that are coming into it, it's incredible. We probably have 15% of these guys or the people that are coming through that are new people every time. Well, they at least think there's an investment aspect, James. I think time is on your side. Every month it's getting stronger and stronger thanks I mean, to every, Jeff and others. That it, it's getting less and the less. The word we, invest yeah. is, is less stigma yeah. if it was. Yeah. But it's not new, important. though, because in, I bought a case of 88 Donruss. Mm. In 88, mm-hmm. and I didn't do it because I like Don Ross. I do it because I thought I was going to make money. And you turned a huge profit, didn't you? In 2021, <laughs> I'm selling more unopened 88 Don Ross than I did from the years 1988 to, to 2020. And it's, it's, not, it's not new. We didn't buy it because we like Don Ross. We bought it. 
that's why I subscribed to the Beckett Price Guide back in the late oh, 80s. Yeah. And to see the arrows. In the early 90s. Oh, I yeah. was there for the arrows. I was there Loved for the, the arrows. arrows. That was the best thing ever. I wanted the arrows. I wanted the arrows. I wanted the arrows. arrows. The, the strike was the biggest down. problem for me because of no arrows for months. And I was like, this is... <laughs> I'm so mad. Like at breakfast, I'd be going through. I was like, this is a brand new Beckett came to me and there's no arrows. down here. So bummed. Kyle, you wanted to say something else? Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that I know exactly what's coming in as far as I see a lot of investors that are flying in from out of state. So it's like the, the new people that are coming in. I see a lot of dads with their kids mm -hmm. that are and grandfathers with their kids. I see I see more of that than what I see investors. The investors we have that are coming in are absolutely coming from out of state. It's uh, more and more. Another thing I'd like to just add real quick is that that I, I see the new product as being almost like a consumer product, even though we made it an investable. There, there's a and, and somewhere a lot of this money will fold over into the Babe Ruths that are numbered up two. I mean, there's only there's only like two hundred of some of these Babe Ruths that are two, three, four thousand dollars out there right now. And it's like I see that as smart money. I just don't know that. In my opinion, I don't know that the that's By the way, this is Kyle Robertson, promoter of the Dallas Card Show, and we're grateful he's in the room too. Kyle, you have a beautiful new store. And I stopped in for the grand opening okay. last week. Yeah. And I mean, it was really nice. We had displays of graded cards yeah. and pack and boxes available for sale. And that's all that is. And to me, that's a perfect way today, I don't want to say dealing with investors, but dealing with what the marketplace is so desiring today. And it's a lot different than your own store. Can you explain a little of your perspective and how you evolved from the old location to the current location? Yeah, uh, so as you mean with the grading, so so first of all, we have DCS grading. So we, we've had that for, I, I guess, about six years. And so um, basically what we've done is we've taken that and we can turn the cards in about 24 hours, I mean, up to 2,000 of them. So we're, we're quick at it. And so we filled that store up with $10 cards that basically they were able to pull up probably what you're pulling out of your out of your dollar boxes out there and so we're filling it up and I mean some of those cards are 30 50 100 dollar cards by the time you put a crate on it and so we've got these kids that are coming in and they're a lot of them are investors and, and I mean even at 14 years old I mean there's a there's a kid that comes in and he'll buy my cards go put them he puts them on uh, on eBay and um, and like I say I don't tell him there's probably a tax problem coming for his parents so <laughs> yeah. it's uh, but anyway it's beautiful it's it's it, but that's that's the model that we're actually changing to as far as I mean the dollar cards we pulled those out and we try to make like a commodity out of that and like the maybe what Brian's doing with the packs um, maybe uh, you know I see the packs as, as being a, a breakers that uh, maybe the demand has been exceeded by the breakers out of line um, but yeah that's that's what we're sort of we sort of went to that model to the traditional car shop. I think one thing we have to look at is the money that's coming in. Where is it coming from and how is it allocated? Because again, I would argue if you ask any dealer in that show, the bulk of their transactions were large investor type transactions. I sat at Aaron's Vane's table for three hours today because I was pretty much done buying things. And I sat there and we sold whatever I'd want to go into his sales, but every card that was sold was to an investor and it was an investor card None of it was PC stuff. And I just think the amount of money, if you take the amount of money spent in this room this weekend, 80 to 90% of it is investor smart, spec, in honor of Ben, invest money. And 10% of it is true collector, heartfelt PC money. 
And that's okay too. Because as long as there is something for the PC collector to buy, he still finds joy in this, that's okay. That blend will probably shuffle back at some point and be 70, 30, or maybe some of the collectors will become investors and some investors will become collectors. That's all okay. But I think most of the money is going, the money is being spent. I asked Lawrence Daggett what he sold here. The first eight things out of his mouth were all cards over 30K. And there was no PC 30K card getting sold here. And all eight cards he named were 30K plus. And none of them are, I promise you, none of those cards are going in PCs. And if they are, bring that guy to me and I'll help him with his PC. Because <laughs> that's the kind of guy I like. I think, I think the thing that's being missed here is that each person is both a collector and an investor. Because you're going to collect things that you buy with your investments. So it's the same thing. It's whether he is a collector because he gets his money from speculation. It's the same, it's the same thing. We're just switching up a word. I will say I, I don't sell any cards. I should. I have some good cards. I just I I'm primarily soccer and I hold them because I love the sport. But I think the only way you could be considered a true collector is if you legitimately don't make any money from selling any of your cards and you're just putting your dollars and your cents into collecting this card. As you said, it's just a PCer who's buying something and not spending any more money outside of the show for other than that card. So like, again, I collect Andre Iniesta cards, which based to the, your conversation about base and parallels, I would love to have some more variety of Andre Iniesta cards. There aren't a lot outside of base. So, you know, in some ways, I would love to see some more of that. But like at the same point in time, I, I don't sell enough to make sense for me to continue to buy Andre Iniesta cards, but I do because I love them. So I think there are lots of different facets, but the point of the matter is that like one person is not just a collector and one person is not just an investor. You were the same thing because you're going to eventually start PCing something. You, unless you are solely in this just to monopolize and like you have no attachments to any sports, any players, anything. That Which group exists, be. though. To oh, your guy? Yeah, I mean, I have athletes that call me and say, Brian, I got a quarter of a million to spend. What should I buy? And I put them into stuff. Yeah. I'm not their investment advisor. I give them some good ideas, but I say, I'm, I'm not an investment yeah, advisor. But they come to me, and these athletes want to pour money in. How many of these people are flippers, though? I mean, I hear investors versus collectors. I, I see a large percentage of flippers in here. I mean, once they come in to me or come to you, they want to buy this. Yes, yeah, they don't know how to get rid of it. They want to so buy it. They don't want to deal with it. They want us to sell it for them, too, when they want out. Yeah, mm-hmm. so. But when you say, are they flippers or not flippers? Most good investors, buy and hold on stocks is one thing, and I'm not even sure I buy into that. Buy and hold on cards, you know, I don't know that many people do that. I think most of us see the volatility, and we take advantage <coughs> of volatility. And when people are stupid, aggressive, we sell. And when people are stupid, panic, we buy, hopefully. Don't you, I mean, you've seen ups and downs, well, right? Just, the, the, this is the original tension. Is this a business or is it a hobby? And so if you all wind the clock back a couple of decades on average for most of you all, when you were kids, there was a situation where you had a hobby experience where you learned about business. Mm-hmm. You maybe never sold a card as a kid. You just bought cards. But you, under, you started understanding some of the dynamics of is it an alternative investment? Kids didn't put it in that language, but there's so many out there. There's so many of the dealers and the people walking who collected when they were a kid without a thought of anything that it's just a hobby, and they didn't use the word business, but they picked up some business savvy. 
from that. I agree. My first time I said And so plan. that's the investment aspect that it's rare that you buy something with the thought this is going in my casket. <laughs> my first experience of selling was at a six foot table at a Kmart when Kmart let you come in and set up tables and sell. What's a Kmart? It's like it's like a Walmart. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but you, they would actually let you come in. They would actually have shows at Kmart, and that's where I learned how to Didn't sell. Did Kmart do the blue light? They did the blue light. Yeah. Special. But that's you remember the wow. Nolan Ryan set. That's where I started collecting that. You remember he had that? It was a Pacific, yeah, Pacific. set. Yeah, oh, yeah, 91. Yeah, so I, that's why I started selling that. I had it with another couple of kids. I was on the basketball team with. We all sat at the table with our dads, and, and we learned how to trade and sell, and we bought packs. For me, thank God in 1987, I figured out I could sell cards at a show. Because that was step one to having a store, and then being a distributor, then making cards. And every dream I've ever had has come true because... I sold cards in 1987. And if I didn't, I'd probably have made a lot of money doing something else, but it wouldn't be like this. This is so fun. This is so fun. I got to live a dream because I sold those first cards at a show in 1987. And I walked into your store and I I bought cards in the store and I realized that I could And I believed I could buy them and sell them. That was like the best lesson I ever learned in my whole life. And my whole life's changed because of it. And we can only hope that these 14 year olds run around with 50K and 100K that maybe they got from their parents, but some of them actually earned it. Yes, some parents funded their kids, but there's kids out there that actually started with 2K and turned it into 15. And those kids, and you know what? I, I, I pray for those kids that they have half the joy that I've got to have because I learned about this in 1987. And we should be like rooting those kids on because that's what this, really, that's what this was all about. And making a bunch of money is fun too, but we got to live our dream because of this. And every one of us has a pretty good and so, James, if they're raining on your parade, that's different than if they're raining on a kid's parade. They're not you know, the kid, they shouldn't say, kid, hey, this is not a good investment. This is not, you know, baloney. Kid, whatever age, they, they should allow you to pursue it and enjoy it. Yeah, no, they're not call raining on my parade, per se. Like, I, I'm smart enough to know, and I agree with what she said. I feel like I'm one and the same. I'm a collector slash investor. So good. But um, I just feel like the hate, like he said, there's so much of it that they, they're like dark clouds in the hobby. And it's like, dude, snap out of it or see yourself out because we don't need Go indoors. Stop reading those cards. Go somewhere else. <laughs> don't want to get to you. Just right? go right? indoors Otherwise. when the clouds are dark. the vernacular <laughs> that kids use these days is completely different from when any of us were kids. And we have multiple generations in here, and I feel really young. But well, thanks, guys. Um, but uh, kids speak as investing is literally like, I have a thing that's now worth more than it was yesterday. So... That's just what the term they use. Yeah. Definitions change. I, I think we have to all come to grips that the collector, the investor, the flipper, all are a part of the hobby. Mm-hmm. Somebody sent me a video not too long ago, and it was footage of a card show back in 1988 or 89. In that video, they did some documentary with some dealers, with some collectors, But back in the 80s, they were using, at least in this video, they were using terms like investing and flipping and collector. And and so I I think it's just, it's it's part of the hobby. It's all part of it. 
And it's okay to evolve. You could start out as a diehard collector, and which I, I consider myself a diehard collector, but I sold 85,000 cards last week, no lie. Yeah. Seven cases of 89 top spending. <laughs> oh yeah. Boxes, okay? I sold, well you know the one card I sold. We've been through that. Only one though. The satchel page. But uh, I don't mind selling the, you know. I'm getting rid of that, that junk is flying out, out the door, it's great, I love it. And it, it comes in and goes out. But, but you, you can evolve. I mean, two people that have been at it longer than anybody at this table, they yeah. evolved. You know, it's, it's just the way it is. We don't have to stick to our feet aren't in concrete. Or... I will say something, though, and I talked about this in a podcast a couple of weeks ago, uh, that I've been in this hobby since I was six years old, and, and I always, you know, would go to shows in the 90s and pick out stuff in dollar boxes and run over to my friend and say, check this out, I guess the dollar, it's worth like five bucks. Mm-hmm. It's like the biggest, most excitement that I had growing up uh, doing those things. And then now I go to a show and I pick out a card that's worth a dollar, and I'm like, man, that card used to be worth five bucks. <laughs> and I take it over, I take it over to a friend of mine, and I look around, I'm like, oh, I don't know who I can share this with, because everybody's like, feels like they're trying to make a dollar. They don't have the same, you know, emotional attachment to this stuff as, as I once, as I still have, that I feel like my core audience, my age group, once mm-hmm. did. Now a lot of the, my friends have dropped off, and, you know, it's a different group. And that's fine. It's, that's, that I accept it. It's just part of the market is what it is. Uh, I just... I can't, I feel kind of irrelevant in a way now. That excitement, it doesn't feel as, as relevant to the current market of things. And, and, and again, I accept it as it stands, so it's fine with me. I just kind of miss running. I'm like, I got this for 10 cents, it's worth a dollar. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Call Jim when that happens. Right, I, he and I get that, and, and, I, that's, and I appreciate that. Other, you know, again, as a vendor, when Kyle started doing two or three day shows, he had one request for me, because I would just bring boxes when I was running my shows. Please have a showcase. Well, now I have, I borrow from a friend of mine three showcases for every show, and I almost want to tell them I want more showcases <laughs> because I'm having more fun. People like seeing the cards. I like the people who dig from the boxes, but the people coming in like seeing the cards in the showcase. So thank you, Kyle. <laughs> Kyle always used to tell me, I want you to at least have one showcase at the big shows. When he was doing the smaller shows in Frisco and Allen, fine. You bring what you want. I don't care. Well, you have good cards. Thank I you. mean, it's like, yeah. Nobody digs yeah. through his stuff. There's no. like diamonds in the rough. Like, there was Mahomes back before he was Mahomes. Many, I mean. Many Ramirez, draft picks, <laughs> rediscover tops. Yeah. I mean, there's all sorts of cool stuff in there. And I actually did have some people dig and enjoy. And I like those people because they have fun with it. But the showcase is the eye candy. Yeah. And, and so there is something to be said for both parts of that. I like the guys who dig, or the women who dig. But the people who come to see me at the show, they, especially the new people, get attracted to what they see under glass. Right. I, think it, I think it also has to do with a lot of the way that society now functions yeah. in instant gratification. <laughs> they don't have to sit at your table for 20 minutes going through a bend to find a card. They have the ability to walk past it for a minute, two minutes, and know if they want to stay and talk with you or if they don't. It it has a lot to do with time. Time is a commodity at this moment. If they can spend more time at a booth where they have something that they want, then they'll do that. And then that way, they're taking advantage of all opportunities. So again, I think showcases definitely plays into the visual aspect of it, plays into showing off. I mean, it's the same thing when you're 
window mall shopping, right? The displays, you're looking at the beautiful displays that they have up and thinking, oh, I want to buy that. But I think it also has to do with like... Attention span. Attention span. It's, it's becoming more and more short. I mean, we're finding this, like when we make our content, we have to be very mindful of like, how long is it going to be? Mm-hmm. Because un- unless you're in a film and like that person's dedicated to sitting for an hour and 30 minutes to two hours, whatever... I mean, you're going to find people that just sure, check I mean, out. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we're scheduled once a week for two hours, and it works. And they and they drop in and out, but it stays relatively consistent all the way through. Podcasts are different. Yeah, okay. podcasts are way different. I I can't yeah. speak on that. Right. Yeah. I I listen to podcasts that are like two hours long, but normally it's because I I listen mm-hmm. to them in stop gaps. Yeah. Like it's a way to f- fill my time when I'm like driving somewhere or walking somewhere or at the gym like it's a way to fill the like silence void Mm -hmm. in a way um but still be engaged so i podcasts are way different but when we're talking about like being physically in person i think it has to play a lot with like that person's ability to like really know what you have and then spend their time appropriately that's why we're starting to see these like cases where it's like like when we saw at the Atlanta Card Show, but there was like a um, uh, a Mike Trout, a huge Mike Trout display. They had the big uh, angel sign up, and then they had all of his cards, and they had the flashing lights. It's like grabbing the attention, it's the attention span, and then you're like, oh, okay. If you're a really big Mike Trout person, you're gonna be there. It's so, all bait, right? You gotta throw some bait out. Yeah. Very when it's, consu- it's consumer behavior trapped. too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like they used to ask John Dillinger, "Why do you rob banks?" And he said, "That's, That's where the money, money is." is. Yeah. yeah. Where do you look for cards that actually have value? And again, everything has value in the rich sense. Yeah. But you're not finding $200, $300, $500, $100 cards in those boxes. Now, I'm surprised. I see $50 boxes now of graded cards that people consider rejects because they're only 50 bucks. Yeah. I'm starting to see some $50 boxes on tables, which is pretty amazing. But we've, tra- we've trained ourselves. Those boxes are for PC guys, for guys that are looking for just obscure weird things or something you might have accidentally mispriced. It's not, it's, not even just, it's not even just attention Brian, span. I figure 90%. We've dropped people. Look in the showcases. That's where the big stuff is. Brian, I figure I get beat 90% of the time. And tables and are I, also two or $300 now. That's expensive real estate for a dollar box. Brian, and I understand yes. that I'm going to feel that I'm going to get beat, and I accept it. It's like, fine. There you go. There you go. So I'm fine with it. But I think table prices, I couldn't find cards to buy here. This is the least money I've ever spent at a show. Wow. I spent under 10 k here today. I'll show you some stuff. I spent under 10 k because I was looking for $50 to $400 football. Very narrow range. And I could not find $50 and $60 and $80 and $100 football stuff. There was nothing. I could not spend money. I have 100 grand in my bag over there. I could not spend I could not spend 10 k <laughs> 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 But I also I tacking, so I'm just letting you know. I'm well, packing. It's not very much when we split well, between all these. <laughs> I'm packing too. But no, but my point being, I couldn't spend $10,000. Because people showcases don't have fifty dollars cards anymore. Are you only doing graded or is it? Uh, I'll buy like raw autograph rookies and stuff too. But the point being, there's nothing there. There's nothing in the middle because showcases is prime real estate, and every showcase I'm shocked. Every showcase is full of one to ten k cards now. The world has changed, mm-hmm. and so when I'm in the market for that stuff, I have a field day here. When I'm in the market for cheap stuff, thank you eBay, your sponsor, because <laughs> that's the place to buy fifty dollars cards now. But I think that's the whole thing. Consumer behavior changes and it changes everything. It doesn't really encourage the PC guy, does it? Is it really inviting to go to a show when 
Everything you see is one, and people put on the price scale, 1K, 3.7K. It depends what you I mean, this is what you see now. They can't even put 37, 3.7K, 0.9K. It's like, how is that a family-friendly, like, really drawing people in environment, you know? Well, I think that's when you get to the base cards. I think when you really do get to the base cards and you have those bins that maybe aren't, like, technically dollars. I mean, like, I scroll through soccer. Anytime we're at a booth and he's making a deal, I mosey over and I'm like, soccer? Mm-hmm. I'm like, I find stuff in there that, like, there are players that I like that I know that are going to be valuable later that I think maybe I'll sell it one day, and then I won't. And then we'll just sit, <laughs> and I'll just collect. But it's, I, I think that what we're seeing is, like, when kids are originally starting to get into it, they are probably going more towards Pokemon, because parents also feel better about paying for a four dollar pack than they feel about paying you know 25 bucks for a select pack or something but like um you know i started in pokemon because it was cheap and mm-hmm. I, I, I and then you're you're finding that gravitational pull when you can pull out players and like one card that you like and then they get to keep that one card and it just i think it's again you say the word adapting and i think that's so important because anytime that there's ever a a period of time that you're looking at, there's always going to be adaptation, whether it's a year, a couple of months. I mean, we've seen that within the past four months, there's been an adaptation of the way the market's running. So, I mean, like, people just have to stay on their toes. We don't have to stay on our toes anymore <laughs> because it's past time. Okay. okay. So, I really appreciate y'all's comments and coming. And, Kyle, thanks for providing the room. For sure. Thank thanks, Kyle. Thank you. Thank you. And thanks for having us, Doc. Well, my we pleasure. I think the hobby is important, and some of these semantic things we're talking about—that words matter. That's why podcasts and YouTubers, content creators—you know what you say and having a positive tone and being aspirational the way things should be. That's those are all good things. So thanks everybody for coming.